we're teaching uh, from Numbers chapter 19, verse 14 and 15. This is the law. When a man dies in a tent, all who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days, and every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. This is what happens um, when someone dies in the house, as it were, and you don't necessarily know the cause of their death. It could be a communicable disease. It could be old age. It could be in a number of things. But the fact that there is death present in that house means that everything in that house has now been rendered suspect because death is in the atmosphere, contamination, disease. There could be so many things going on. And I think of this recent epidemic it was only just a year or two ago about Ebola. You remember what happened in Dallas when somebody got Ebola there and a whole apartment had to be quarantined? Well, this is what happened in the Bible before the days of microbiology. They quarantined that house and everything in it. And for seven days, it was considered to be unclean. Every vessel in the house was considered to be unclean, with one exception. If it had a cover over it, it was considered to be clean. If it was not covered, it was automatically assumed to be contaminated. And therefore, it had to sit through a seven-day quarantine period after which there were purification rituals and ceremonies that were conducted. And on the eighth day, eight being the number of new beginnings, it was now considered to be rendered fit for use by people once more. And the analogy here of course, is important because churches are spiritual coverings, as I'm going to show you in just a moment from the Bible. But when you are covered, you understand that at any moment, there's always death in the atmosphere. There's always death somewhere, bad attitudes, death, spiritual death, temptation, all kind of stuff going on, failure, divorce, you name it, drug addiction, all that's at work around us, death. Is at work in the air around us. Spiritual coverings keep you from becoming contaminated. They assist you. Otherwise, this death in the atmosphere can, can cause a problem for you. In Psalms 105, verse 37 through 45, he brought them out with silver and gold, and also there was none feeble among his tribes. This is, of course, referring to the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give them light in the night. The people asked, and he brought quail, and he satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands, plural, of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of nations that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. And then this exclamatory response, praise the Lord. Just say it with me. Praise the Lord. Father, in your name, would you speak to us today and open your word to our understanding and let us be receptive and responsive to what the Spirit of the Lord has to say to us through your word in Jesus' name. And we ask this, of course, for your glory. Amen. People sometimes ask me when I deal with spiritual coverings, 
they ask me what I use as a reference for the, when I say that we often think of the cloud as being vertical and the pillar of fire as being vertical. How do I know that it was horizontal? Well, not only do Jewish scholars teach that, but this is one of the verses they use as the foundational text for, for believing that it was horizontal. Notice what it says in verse number 39. He spread a cloud for a covering. Spread a cloud for a covering. Now, when it got time to move, that cloud would pick up and begin to move. But the rest of the time, it hovered over the nation of Israel. And I'm using this because I want you to see that they were covered by that cloud, as we've already mentioned, and everything under the cloud was affected by that cloud. At night, that cloud would turn into a pillar of fire, and of course, that would warm the nation of Israel in the plunging temperatures of the cold desert night and uh, keep them warm. But... Under that cloud, the most remarkable thing happened, as I've already informed you. This, I remind you, is in the Arabian Desert, one of the most harsh, inhospitable deserts that exist in the world. They get an average of about one inch of rain every 10 years. That if you add up all the rain over a 10-year period, that it accumulates to somewhere around an inch. And sometimes it's even less than that. Temperatures soar to an amazing 140 degrees during the, the, the hot summer months. It's unbelievably inhospitable. Hardly anything can live there, much less sustain the life of three and a half to four million Jewish people. But under that cloud, everything changed, as I've already said. A rock gushed water. The desert blossomed like a rose. They were given quail as food. Uh, manna on the ground, just they're closed in where all, all of these things that I've already explained. And, and the reason this is important is I'm talking to you about the function and power of spiritual coverings. When you enter into a covenant with a church and that church becomes your church, it also becomes your spiritual covering, or more specifically, your ministry covering. In this series, we're talking about the eight different types of spiritual coverings that comprise your covering when you become a committed member in a particular church. I've already spoken about several of these. We've talked about blood coverings that, that provide divine protection. We've talked about prayer coverings that enable access to the promises and the provisions of God. Just yesterday, I was visiting with a minister who has been displaced in ministry because of some things that happened, tragedies that actually occurred in his life that he was not uh, responsible for, he didn't get to vote on. But nonetheless, it has isolated him for a season in his life for a time of healing and redirection and reorientation, recalibration as it were. And he's now having to, he had an overseas ministry, he's preached to hundreds of thousands of people at one time, and uh, he has been visiting in our services and has sought me out to, to give him some advice. And I was able to share with him that, that in spite of the circumstance that he's facing right now where all resources have dried up, and again, through no fault of his own, he didn't do anything that would bring this upon himself. There's, there's no sin or failure in his life. It's just a tragic circumstance. He had, had tragedy occur in his family that just 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 for a time, put him on, on the sidelines, as it were. And I was able to share with him that whenever God called him into ministry, in spite of these present circumstances, in fact, preceding his call into ministry, when God created him at the same time, God released into the heavenlies 
There are three heavens. There is the, the sky above. There is, of course, the spiritual dimension, the atmosphere that Paul talked about where there's war in the heavenlies. Satan is the prince and power of that air, the heavenlies. And the third heaven is the abode of God. And I was able to share with him that whenever you were created, God released everything into the heavenlies that you would ever need to fulfill your earthly assignment. God is not like us who sometime wake up and realize that we've overlooked something. God doesn't get up and say, oh, gee, I, I, God, John has been called in the ministry. I know I called him, but you know, wow, I didn't plan for this. It's not in the budget. Now, how can I squeeze together some resources to facilitate his ministry? No, when God created John, he released into the heavenlies everything that John would ever need to fulfill his assignment. God doesn't send you to do an assignment without equipping you. Paul said, no man goes to battle at his own cost. You're a soldier. Your general has already calculated what the costs are going to be. His emperor has already seen to that, made budgetary requests and allocations that will fund this enterprise. Similarly, our king of kings sent us into this world on assignment, and I do believe that every living human being comes into this earth with an assignment. God doesn't create stuff that has no purpose. You might not understand the purpose of everything, but everything has a purpose. Amen. You might not even understand your purpose, but you have a purpose too. And so I was able to share that with him. And, and what prayer really does is it reaches into the heavenlies, past the, the realm of the prince and the power of the air. It reaches through that second heaven. And it gets a hold of those and brings those resources to earth. Because though God has released him, released them, prayer makes you God's participatory partner in the accomplishment or the achievement of his work. I'm telling you this because every single thing you will ever need in life has already been provided. The Bible says that. He's already provided. He knows what you need before you ask. In fact, he knew what you would need before you were born. Much less, much less develop the intellectual capacity, much less even the ability, the faculty of speech. So before you had the intellectual wisdom to know what you would need or the speech to articulate such a request, God had already known what that need would be and released it, and prayer reaches up into the heavenlies. And with God, you bring those things into this present dimension. We've talked about that. I spent four weeks on worship coverings because they enable entry to the glory dimension, which is the third dimension. I talked about it three weeks. Andrew, I hear, did a great job last week in talking about it as well. I heard so many good things. And all these others I've only spent one week on, but I, that's four weeks on worship. Why four weeks on worship? It is because of the eight spiritual coverings. Seven of them are more about what they do for us. They really are. The eighth worship coverings is about what we do for him. And it's only natural and right that we should not talk only about what we need. We should also talk about what we should give to him. And worship is significant in this measure, this regard. The kingdom of God is set up on a foundational premise, a principle that is unalterable. And that is, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. You can't outgive God. And if you give God worship, I promise you, you're going to get more out of it than you're going to give to him. And it's always been that way and ever will be. 
Today I want to talk about the fourth type of spiritual covering, and that is grace coverings or coverings of grace. And you'll forgive me, I've shared this joke once before, but it's my favorite joke on grace, and I like it so much, and, and you may not uh, know about it, but our good friends of Baptist, you ever hear anybody say, I believe once saved, always saved? Well, listen to this. In a small rural community, so small, in fact, the only church in town was a small Baptist church, whose pastor also doubled as the local barber to make ends meet, there happened to be a man in this small community who had invested wisely and was enjoying his newfound comfort. This man got out of bed one day to go through his daily routine, looked into the mirror, and as he was about to shave, he decided, I make enough money now. I don't need to shave myself. I'll go down to the barber and let them shave me from now on. So he did. And he walked into the barber shop and found the preacher slash barber was out calling on the shut-ins, a sick in the community. And the pastor's wife, Grace, was there. And she said, well, I usually do the shaves anyway. Sit down and I'll shave you. So he did. And when it came time to pay her, he asked, how much do I owe? And she said, $25. And he gulped. That was a lot of money for a shave. My heavens, $25. He thought, well... You know, she shaved me. I'll go ahead and give her the 25 bucks, and he did. And he, he began to think, I may need to come in every other day instead. But the next day, he woke up and found his faith was as smooth as a baby's skin, as smooth as when she finished shaving him. And he said, well, it's not so bad. I got two days out of this. The next day, he woke up. Again, his face was still as smooth as though he had just been shaven. Next day, same thing. Wow, he thought, this is amazing. He got up the next day and went back to the barber shop to find out what was going on. And this particular day, the pastor was in and the man asked him, how is it possible that I was shaved and now four days later, my face is still as smooth as it was when Grace got through shaving me? And the pastor smiled and said, friend, you've been shaved by Grace. And once shaved, always shaved. <laughs> And if you're a Baptist, you'll get a kick out of that. And I, I, I do like that one. Coverings of grace create an open heaven and cause one to walk in divine favor. After I finish that, we'll go on to love coverings and coverings of the anointing, and then glory coverings, and then finally ministry coverings. But I'll spend today and next week on coverings of grace because they are significant. They create an open heaven over your life, your family, and all that pertains to your life and calls you to enter into the realm of divine favor. As I read to you that passage from the Psalms, as he described what happened when the cloud was spread over the nation of Israel, they experienced a realm of favor that contradicted the environmental and natural circumstances around them. A similar kind of comparison would be to watch people thrive in the middle of a depression or watch someone thrive in the middle of other types of attacks or difficulties where collectively humanity as a whole was not doing so well, but for some reason or other, you seem to have a divine immunity from what was going on in the rest of the earth. There is an element of divine immunity that exists in a grace covering doesn't mean you don't go through things. It just means you don't, it doesn't have the same effect on you. Everything under that cloud experienced an open heaven. In this series, I've been making the point that we should seek to understand the power and function of spiritual coverings for a number of reasons that are significant. Reasons that are often forgotten if we assume the common 
consumer mentality that exists in the world today toward all things. Consumer mentality is a way of life. It's unfortunate that it has bled over into the relationship we have with church. I know ministers, for example, that are affected with the same consumer mentality, and they will choose this church rather than this other one because this one gives me better opportunity. This one is more socially connected. This is more prominent in a denomination. This one, I'll get a little better paycheck. So many things. Rather than seeking God's will for where they should go, I personally strongly believe that a minister should seek the will of God for where he should be placed. I believe equally as strongly that saints should do the same thing. You don't just choose a church using the consumer mindset that this church is closer to my house. It's more convenient to get to. You don't do stuff like that, but yet people do it every day. People choose a church on the basis of this church has a service that only lasts 55 minutes. That one over there, it lasts 60. CT, that's an hour and 15 minutes at least. This church doesn't preach certain issues in the Bible, and I get to be whatever I want to be. And, you know, bottom line is, because they don't deal with the entirety of the scope of Scripture, and they leave certain things out to be more socially acceptable, then I get to get by with a lot of, so I like that church right there. And I need you to understand that, and I say this with love, that if you're looking for a church that will just allow you to go through life without ever dealing with the call of God that he's placed on every one of us to elevate our lives and move a little closer to him, you're, you're probably not in the right place right now. And I'll tell you why. Because one of the most important things that we stress here is that God needs to be worshipped. We want God to show up. Can I hear an amen? It's not just about coming here to be seen or to hear a little sermonette for Christianettes. It's about coming to have an encounter with God. And I can tell you this, though we will always love everybody regardless of who it is, of what's going on in your life, because we're not perfect either, and we'll never single anybody out and put somebody under the microscope, as it were, and make them feel bad. I can tell you, because I know this from my own life, when God shows up, he confronts issues in your life because he's calling you to a higher plane and level of existence. Amen. It's God that does that. And churches that do not prioritize an encounter with God don't facilitate this ability for you to be able to draw closer to God because they don't challenge you in this way that you're challenged when God does show up in a place and calls you higher. And when he does it, it's never with judgmentalism. I don't want you to suggest that, and that's why I had to say a while ago, we won't make you feel bad. But God never does it with judgmentalism. What he does is he wraps his arms around you, and it breaks your heart. Because you know that you've got some stuff going on, and you find out he loves you anyway. And man, that just it makes you want to, to reach way down. And if he loves you that much, how can you not love him back? Amen. But people choose churches on all of these different 
bases and, and they choose it because it's close or the location or it's this or it's that or it doesn't preach this or it does preach that or it's got a choir or whatever. I don't know. But the problem is, is they don't seek God for where God wants them to be. And they often read into the situation what their own emotions and feelings are telling them. And then they equate that with the voice of God speaking. I can't even tell you how many times people have come to me and said, God said this. And I knew when they said it that it was their own emotions or own indoctrination, as it were, paradigm that was speaking. Because somebody else came right behind them and said the exact opposite. God told them the opposite. And how many gods are there? And can he make up his mind? And I love to tell the old story. It's like the preacher in the prayer line. And uh, the lady came forward and he laid hands on her and prayed for her and said, Thus says the Lord, the Lord is calling you to be a missionary to China. And she was so excited. And the guy behind her came up and he laid hands on him and prayed for him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, the Lord's calling you to be a missionary to India. And he said, Wait a minute. That was my wife that you said God is calling to China. And the man said, Just a minute. He said, clarification, the Lord is saying he's calling both of you to Indochina. Amen. There's a lot of stuff that God said that he didn't really say. If you listen to people, he said it. My point is this, that we have to be so careful because our spiritual covering is only where God places us. It is. I know that when I came here to Houston, it will soon be 29 years ago. I, I don't know if I've, I've shared this with you in quite this same way. I didn't want to come here. I didn't like Houston. I love this city now. I love the city. I love the people. I love the diversity of the culture. I love the fact that I can get papacitos or papados. I mean, that, that, that's a, that's a, a good reason to be in a city. Amen. I have everything I want right here. I can go down to get Indian food, or I can get Chinese, or I can get Vietnamese. I, I can go down to Fogo de Chao, or I think that's how you say it, Fogo de Chao. I, I, you know, just whatever the mood I'm in at that moment requires, I can find it. But I used to not like this city. I even love the traffic in this city now. I do. You're complaining about the traffic. I used to complain about the traffic. And then it occurred to me, those are not cars. Those are people behind those steering wheels. And they're people who need the, the gospel message. Talk about an audience. Wow. I'm in what is now arguably the third largest city in the United States of America. I know pastors that are in little bitty communities that run 400 in the community. I've got millions of people within just a few miles of our doorstep. I love being here. Wasn't always that way. I remember when I received the first phone call from the former pastor of this church that I'd known for many years. He asked me to meet him in Beaumont, Texas. And there, just this side of Beaumont, there's a Holiday Inn. I don't know what it is now. It was a Holiday Inn then over on the left. And we met there. And he sat down. He had prepared a proposal. And he presented it to me. And he said... I feel like I want to retire. We've made a decision. We're leaving in one year. 
And we want you to come. And we want you to be the pastor. Come work with me for a year. And then you become the pastor of the church. And you know what I said? Thank you, but no. Not interested. I don't like Houston. I used to drive through this city in 19 years in evangelistic ministry. We would pull a travel trailer through the city on my way to California, Arizona, or wherever we were going, West Texas, and all places all out toward the west from here. And that meant I-10, right? And so you'd get on the freeway here, and I don't care when you came, it was always traffic. And my fingers would grip the steering wheel until I almost broke the steering wheel off. My knuckles would turn white. And we finally got through it. I almost have to unpry my fingers one at a time. And I was a nervous wreck. And every time I would tell my wife, especially when one of those big 18-wheelers came this close beside me, and because of its air movement that was being, the movement of air being displaced, it would shake the, the whole travel trailer we were pulling and almost suck it into the side of that 18-wheeler. And I'm fighting that thing. And I'd say, if God ever calls us to settle down, I don't want it to be Houston. And the Lord, <laughs> that you never say never to, called me to Houston. So I told that pastor, I said, no. He said, would you go pray about it? I said, I don't really need to pray about it. I already know. He said, no, go pray about it. We've heard from God. And I said, <laughs> sounded like one of those people telling me what God told them again. So I said, I'll pray about it. I had just gotten back from the Far East in Japan, Korea, and India. I'm sorry, uh, Philippines. Hong Kong and the Philippines. And um, I got into LAX late. Our plane was delayed. And LAX is a little bit different than George Bush. When you go to George Bush, there's a long hallway and gates that go out from the side of the long hallway on either side. LAX, they're round hubs like this and planes that go out in a circle around and they, they park in and, and a, this hub is the center. And, and so when you deplane from one gate, you're right next door to other gates because it's in a circle. So you're here, the next gate's here, and the next one's here. My gate to catch the flight to Houston was right next to the gate that I had just come in on. But because we were a little late, I raced off the plane knowing that I was late and I needed to make that connection because that connection was back to Houston. And from Houston, I was going to travel to Lake Charles and I, it was the last flight into Lake Charles. If I didn't make that connection, it would cost me another day. And I was homesick and wanting to see mama. And I miss my kids. And I rushed off the plane and rushed next door, and the gate had just closed. They closed it as I was moving toward the gate. The lady walked in, closed the gate. So I walked up and started banging on the door real quick, hoping she had opened the door for me. And after a while, she did, but it was after a while. And I said, ma'am, we just came in, and I'm supposed to be on that flight. And she said, I'm sorry, it's too late. I just closed the door. And I said, please. And honest to God, I was nice. I won't need to repent about this afterward either. I was nice. On other occasions, I've needed to pray. But on this occasion, I said, ma'am, please. I've been gone for several weeks. I really need to be on that plane. If I don't get on that plane, I'm not going to make my connection. I'll be away from my family for another day. 
And I really miss him. And my kids miss me. And my wife misses me. And I need to be on that plane. And I need a pot of gumbo. And they don't serve it out here in LAX. And, you know, it just uh, gave her every reason I could think of and then some. And she said, no. But I continued to plead. And after about 10 minutes, you know what she said? She did. She said, I'll, I'll ask the captain. And the way it's set up, I was standing right in front of the window. And the captain is right there. The nose of the plane is pointing, and he's watching me, and I'm watching him go down his checklist. And I see him begin to talk to the lady as she's on the phone, and you know what he said? He said, ma'am, if you had let him on when he first came to the gate, I would have been happy to have allowed him to fly. But we finished the checklist, and the tower has just cleared us to depart, and we have to go right now. fee fi fo uh, I still was nice. And after that meeting with that pastor in Beaumont, who used to pastor here 29 years ago, I went to sleep after telling him no, and the Lord gave me a dream, and I saw that myself at that gate watching that plane pull away, and the voice of the Lord, and God has given me direction, major direction, often comes in the form of a dream for me in terms of ministry. And the Lord spoke to me and said, just like you saw that plane pull away, my anointing is going to pull away if you don't go to Houston. And I got up the next morning and I called the pastor and I said, I'm coming to Houston. And his only statement was, I knew you would. I said, God spoke to me. Amen. And... I'm going to tell you, it's been the ride of a lifetime. I wouldn't trade places with anybody. You know that I have never been tempted to leave here. Never. We've had a few situations in the early years um, when I first came here that had to be addressed and things happened because of some situations with previous leadership. And that's all I'll say about that. I always want to give honor, not dishonor, but to be in the interest of full disclosure, I just will tell you it was challenging. And I had churches offered to me. And after a while, they stopped offering churches. You know why? Because I said a resounding no every time. Once you have a visitation like I had... It resolves that in your mind, and you, you don't question whether you're going to go or not. You, yeah, God, I'm going. When? As soon as I can get my bag packed. And if you ask, I won't even take my bag. I'll leave right now. Amen. Once you ha- hear the voice of God, I know that you understand that about ministers. But my question is, do you understand that about yourself? Because just like I am called to a place, so are you. The Bible said God takes the solitary and puts him in families. Amen. And the reason for this is there is a particular covering that is going to, that God in his infinite wisdom has already tailor made to provide what you're going to need in the course of your life. Everything you will ever need. It's like the old Prego commercial, it's in there, in the covering. And when we talk about grace coverings, I want you to understand that there is more than just one kind of grace. I'll go through this quickly, and then next week I'll get into the heart of what I want to say. Grace, an acronym for grace is simply this, God's riches at Christ's expense. 
If you want to know what grace means, there it is. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace doesn't cost you anything. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't give enough to get it. You can't pray enough to earn it. You can't fast long enough. It's the free gift of God given by God on the basis of what Christ has already paid. And you might not know this, but there are 12 different kinds of grace that are specifically mentioned in the Bible. There's not just one kind of grace, and most people, when they think of grace, that's what they think. Grace is grace is grace, right? No, not, not really. There are at least 12 different kinds. 12 is the number of, of government, 12 foundations, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 sons of, of Jacob, 12 apostles, 12 foundations of the holy city, 12 gates, and I could go on and on. 12 months in the year, just endless. The governmental number in Scripture, I've taught you this before, is the number of 12. And there are 12 different kinds of grace. The first is prevenient grace. And it is the divine love of God that surrounds all humanity. And notice this, precedes any and all of our conscious impulses and actions. What does it mean, precede your conscious impulse and action? That is, this is the grace that goes before you felt to pray. This is the grace that goes before you became aware of God. This is the grace that existed in your life before you decided to surrender your heart to God. In fact, before you knew you were a sinner, this is the grace that goes before. The word prevenient actually means the grace that comes before, and it precedes our conscious impulses and actions, and this is the action of God taking the initiative to pursue a relationship with us and urging us to turn toward God in repentance or metanoia, which is to change our mind so that we may be delivered from the bondage of sin and death. That's prevenient grace. And what it simply means is, when you were still a sinner, the grace of God was at work in your life. You didn't come to God because you found him. I, see, I hear people say that, and I always try as gently as I can to say, no, no, you didn't find God. He wasn't lost. He found you. Amen. Amen. No disrespect, man, if you use that term, because I know where you're coming from. But what is it that put a desire in your heart? What is it that made you wake up one morning and decide that you're going to give your heart to God? What is it that made you aware of your need of salvation? What is it that kept you alive when you should have died so many times but something wrapped its arms around you and you weren't even thinking about God? Am I talking to somebody right now? Protected you. When you never acknowledged him, that's provenient grace. Amen. There's another kind of grace. It's called common grace. And this is that benevolence which is poured out upon all men regardless of their spiritual condition. Sinners walk in this grace. It's common grace. It's the grace that all humanity enjoys. And, and it, this is sometimes mystifying and causes consternation among believers because they say, that guy's living such a, a terrible life. How can he possibly enjoy the blessings he's enjoying? It's because of common grace. The grace of God is wanting so much to pull you to him, to seek you out and to bless you, that even though we don't deserve it, because remember, deserves have nothing to do with this. Grace is the riches of Christ at Jesus' expense. Amen. 
Christ's expense. And regardless of your life, you walked in a measure of grace before you were saved. Not just provenient grace, but even common grace, which means that not only did he protect you and keep you alive and call you to him, but you even enjoyed a measure of blessing and success in your career because of common grace. And then there's saving grace, and this is that generous provision of salvation on the cross of Calvary and the securing of it by divine intervention. What does that mean? It simply means that you wouldn't even be here if God hadn't stepped right in the middle of your road and like Saul of Tarsus, knocked you down. You say, man, I was doing fine and all of a sudden the bottom fell out in my life. You know what God will do? God will let you run things until you come to a dead end and then stand there and say, I'm waiting for you. Because there is a way that seems right in the man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And you know what happens? Saving grace will come knock on your door. Saving grace is when the Savior stands and says, behold, I knock. You didn't come seeking him. He came seeking you. Oh, somebody in the building ought to say hallelujah right now. And it was secured in your life by divine intervention. God gave you the power to say yes. And then there was securing grace. And that is the manifestation of God's benevolence by which Christians are kept secure in spite of sin. And yes, I said the word, in spite of sin. Because none of us are perfect. Not a single one of us are. We all have this treasure in earthen vessels. Can I hear somebody say amen? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. You're going to make mistakes. And uh, again, back to this whole business of grace. And that's why I told you that joke about once shaved, always saved. Ch- sh- uh, shaved. And our good Baptist friends that tell you that once saved, always saved. I'll tell you this, ladies and gentlemen. Somebody said, do you believe in once saved, always saved? you believe in eternal security? I'll tell you what I was taught. I was taught eternal insecurity. I was taught every time you went to church, you better repent. You're going to bust hell wide open. Amen. I mean, I was always one altar call away from going to hell again. Because I was a human being and was flawed. Anybody hearing what I'm talking about? I have this treasure in earthen vessels. I knew I was making mistakes. Preacher didn't know. Nobody but God and me knew. But it was enough for me to feel condemned in my heart. And yeah. And I'm the pastor, but I'm going to tell you a prayer I pray every day. Every single day, I pray, God, forgive me where I failed you. Because I am not perfect. I still have a vessel that's made of clay. Oh, I wish I could hear an amen. It was John Osteen who told me one time, he said, Pastor Rich, he said, the problem with Pentecostals and spirit-filled folk, and he included himself and his church members in this, is he said, we think John chapter 3, where it says that which is flesh is flesh and that which is spirit is spirit, we think we can make flesh become spirit and it never will be. It will always be flesh as long as you live. You live in a fleshly body that's prone to temptation and failure. But I want to tell you there's a God that loves you in spite of it all, that still has his arms wrapped around you. Having said that, that is not a license to use grace to go out and do wrong and say, oh, because pastor just told me that grace has his arms wrapped around me. Yeah, but what you can do is walk away from the grace of God too. And so don't be using this as an, an occasion to sin. Don't use grace to create disgrace. Hello, somebody. Securing grace is the manifestation of God whereby you're kept secure. I'm not kept secure because I, I'm strong enough. I'm kept secure because he holds me in his hand. 
And he's whole, I just need to say it, he's holding you in his hand too. There's sanctifying grace, and this is the grace which works within the true believer in such a way as to bring growth, maturity, and progress in the process of becoming Christ-like. I'm not where I used to be. I've grown some in God over these years, and I'm not where I'm going to be a few years from now either, amen, and hopefully none of us are. The simple truth of the matter is what enables me to grow to the next level is the grace of God that calls me higher. And one thing at a time enables me and gives me strength to let go of what's holding me back, sanctifying grace. And then there's serving grace. It's the enablement to minister in such a way as to manifest the life of our Lord through the, through the members of a church body as the members of, of the body of Christ. We become Jesus in the flesh to people around us. And this refers to acts of generosity and time and giving and, and service and helping and, and caring and compassion in a broken and hurting world. Amen. I've often said it, the church is not a showcase for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. And broken people come here. Can I hear an amen? And as you continue to grow in God, after a while... You find yourself not just coming for you, but you find yourself wanting to, to serve and help. And then there's sustaining grace. And this is the grace given at special times of need, especially during adversity or suffering. Because have you figured it out yet? This is a broken world, as I've so often told you. It's broken in every sense of the word. It's broken in politics, it's broken in leadership, broken in the economy, broken in health, broken in weather, broken in this, broken in families, broken in that. It's a broken world. And even though you're a child of God, you live in this fallen, broken world, and man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. And right now, some of you are saying, I rebuke that, I don't receive that in Jesus' name. You know, you're... you're saying, I, I don't, that's a lie from the pit of hell. I rebuke it. You can rebuke it all you want to. You're going to still have some trouble in this broken world that we live in because it's a fallen world. Amen. But I'll tell you what God's grace does. There's sustaining grace that shows up when you need it. It wasn't there before you needed it. I know a little bit whereof I speak. I've been through enough surgeries and, and so forth. You don't even know this, but two weeks ago, I made a decision to not have another surgery. I went, I've seen four specialists, and the last one told me, I'll do the surgery. And just to let you know what it was, it was putting 18-inch metal rods alongside each side of my spine. And I've already got several fusions in my neck, which meant that I'd be walking around with the straightest posture of anybody in this church. Say, that guy's straight as an arrow. You better believe it. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Couldn't bend. And the doctor said, we can do this. And I got to thinking about where I'm at in ministry and with this church and building programs. And I said, no, I'm not going to do this right now. Uh-uh, not going to. And you know what? I've been through some stuff. I don't like to complain. I've been betrayed. I don't get up here and talk to you about it. I've had people that I poured my heart out to turn around and betray me, question my motives, impugn my character, cast aspersions at me. Oh, yes, the higher you go, the bigger the target you become. 
Oh, yes, yes, I can tell you that. And yet I get up here Sunday after Sunday and act like I don't have a care in the world. But just because I act like it, don't you think that I don't? Because I can get hurt just like everybody else can. Can I really preach to you right now? I don't like all this plastic stuff where pastors can't be real. I'm going to be real to you and tell you, yes. I've been betrayed, I've been hurt, I've been talked about, I've had stories made up, things said that are unbelievable, unbelievable. And you know what? I, I, could, I would be crushed and something would happen at that moment that didn't happen before. And that would be the sustaining grace of God would show up. And if you had told me some years ago I could go through what I've gone through, I would have said, you don't know what you're talking about. But I found sustaining grace at the time of need. God never shows up too early and he never shows up too late. He always shows up right on time. And if you're a child of God and you're under a covering of grace, God will show up right when you need him to show up. I'm preaching to somebody right now. Yes, I am. I don't know what you're walking through, but I want to tell you there's grace, 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 grace. I'm just about done. Amen. And... The Bible said underneath of the everlasting arms of God. Let me explain what I figured out that means. See, I, I think I've got family to fall back on. Friends, church, loved ones. After all that's been stripped away, underneath, there's still the everlasting arms of God. You think you've fallen as far as you can fall? Oh, no. You just fell into the arms of God. That's what you did. And you're going to find grace you did not know was available. You're going to have strength you did not know existed. And that's why I look at people that walk through things, and I know they're not that strong. I know they're not that powerful. And I say, how are you doing it? And they say, by the grace of God. It's sustaining grace. There's provisional grace. This is what I'll talk about next week. And that's the grace that God bestows upon us in providing for our needs. <laughs> then there's the grace to forgive. And I've got to do this quickly. Because I've had people do things, as I just said, that I've learned. I don't need to carry that around in me. Because it's acid that eats up the container that holds it. And, and I need to let it go. And... And I can't let it go. And I'm talking about being able to forgive somebody. I know what we say. If they'll just tell me they're sorry. Say, I did you wrong. I'll forgive you. Look, there's some folk will never tell you they're sorry. And they are sorry. But they'll never say it. And they don't mean it like I just did. They will never ask you to forgive them. You've got to let it go anyway. How do you let it go so it doesn't eat you up? It's the grace of God to forgive. That's what it is. God will give you grace to release it. Then there's the grace to accept. There's some things you will never change in life. And you have to accept them. And I'll tell you how I've learned to do that. I've learned to do that with things such as this back situation that I, I've lived with all these years.
I'll tell you how I've done that. What I've done is I've told him, Lord, this is the measure of your suffering. Let it be fulfilled in me. Amen. If you suffer with him, you will reign with him. God, I'm not going through near what Jesus went through with nails in his hands. Let me identify. You hurt from me. God, let me hurt for you now. You felt pain from me. If I got to carry this, I don't want to carry it for me. I want to carry it for you, God. And I want you to know that this is the measure of love that I have for you. The grace to accept. And then there's the grace to give. And in today's world, that's really important. And this is a grace where earthly things don't mean anything anymore. Possessions don't matter. And I've reached that place in my life because I've encountered riches far greater than the little check the church gives me twice a month. You can have whatever I have. God could take it all away. If he asks for it, he knows before he asks, it's his. Amen. You know why? Because he gave me something so much better. Why would I hesitate to trade in an old Ford Pinto? Y'all remember those? When God's got a Rolls Royce. And by that, I'm talking about relationship. Why would I hold on to something beggarly if God asked me for it? He gives me the grace to let go. That's a grace that many of us have never realized in our lives. But when you reach that grace, I'll tell you what happens. It opens a door into a measure and dimension you will never get any other way. Because God says, I can trust you now. If you can let go, I can give you more. And it won't corrupt you and it won't cause you to be destroyed. Some people were much better Christians when they were poor. And if God loves you, you know what he'll do? If you don't get it together, he will let you go back to poor again. Just because he loves you so much, he don't want you to be lost. And the final grace is the grace to prosper and have in abundance. That is even beyond provisional grace, and I will get there next week. I'm closing, but I will say this. The measure of favor that I had through the years, I've observed something, and I've preached in many churches in many nations and 50 states and all that kind of stuff. I've, I've traveled in ministry for a long number of years, and I feel like that qualifies me. I, I could be wrong, but just bear with me. If don't want it to sound egotistical or like I'm the final word because I'm not. All I can say is that I've observed through the years that the measure of favor that individual believers experience is not the same from one believer to another. It is not. God is fair. He's no respecter of persons. Favor is not fair. Amen. God is fair, but favor isn't. And I want to talk to you about next week about an element of grace that goes beyond being fair, where God makes you his pet, where you become the apple of God's eye, where you walk in a dimension of favor you couldn't earn, you couldn't beg for, you couldn't make happen if you tried. Can somebody say amen? And I close with this, because actually the word grace in the Bible is, the New Testament is the Greek word charis. The same word, C-H-A-R-I-S, that is the root word for charismatic. It's, some would say charis. It's not cherish, it's charis. And it's the Greek word, 
that you even see translated in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. It's the same root word, gift. You know what it is translated in, in many places in your Bible? If you have a modern translation, it won't say spiritual gifts. It will say grace gifts. Because the word grace actually comes from the word that means gift. There is a place where you walk in the gifted favor of God. Oh, amen. And it might not look like it at first. I looked over at the first service this morning, and um, when I did, they're normally sitting beside me on the front pew is Irvin and Phyllis Clark. Uh, they're on our pastoral staff. Most of you know Irvin and Pastor Irvin and Pastor Phyllis, and they're part of our team. And Irvin began to experience back problems here several months ago, and this kind of rocked on for a while, and he was going to specialists, and they were telling him, you need to have surgery at stenosis. How many of y'all know what stenosis is? That's a narrowing of the, of the opening of the spinal column and so forth. As you get older, it happens to just about everybody. How many of you have ever had back pain? Can I see your hand? Oh, my God, look at you. How many of you presently have stenosis? And you, you know that you do. Some of you already know that you do. It's actually very common. I've got it. Nearly everybody has it that reaches a certain wonderful age. Amen. Like fine wine. Wow. And so Irvin was afraid of the surgery and, and reluctant to have it. And I finally pulled him aside one day and I said, look, Irvin, go get the surgery done. Go get it done. I said, I'm talking to you as somebody that's had it, and I'm not being unsympathetic, but I'm telling you, as your friend, go get it done. And I said, what are you going to do? Spend the rest of your life on one of those little scooters? I'm not making fun of you if you have to have one. I pray God will raise you up where you won't need that blasted thing. But Irvin, I said, do you want to spend the rest of your life on a scooter? You're too young for that. You've got destiny ahead of you and ministry and go get the surgery done. He said, Pastor, I'm going to do it. I'm going next week. And he went to the doctor and the doc he came back the following Sunday and said, they scheduled me for some pre-ops and we're going to do some tests and I'm getting the surgery done maybe this week. And you know what happened? I came back the next weekend and he said, they said I'm anemic and they began over the next two or three weeks to treat his anemia and they couldn't stop the loss of red blood and his body was anemic and iron levels were low. And, and they said, we've got to do an upper and lower GI. And you know what they found? And he told me that I could, I could tell you. I, I, before I left a couple of weeks ago, I didn't make it back last weekend because of circumstances. But, but before I finished last weekend's service, the last weekend I was here, I, I shared with you that we needed to be praying for him. And, and um, they found a mass in his intestines. And it was a tumor. And the doctor couldn't even get the scope through the tumor. It was that big. And they scheduled him for immediate surgery. And they went in there. And this is the report that I've got on my phone. I hope I never accidentally delete it. Phyllis sent me a text message and said, Pastor, the doctor, when he went in, they got it all. First, you need to know that. They got all the, the cancer. Amen. The whole thing. It's gone. But listen to this. Listen to this. She said that if he had waited two weeks, that it would have completely closed up and he would have lost his life. And I thought back to that conversation I had with him in the office where I said, go get the surgery done. It's not going to get any better unless God heals you. And you're praying for God to heal you and it hadn't happened yet and God also works through doctors, so go get, 
get it taken care of. He would not have gone to have the test and would not have known about the tumor. And here's where I'm coming from. Grace will make things turn around. It may look like something really tragic. You may not like it, but when grace gets through, it will turn out being the best thing that ever happened in your life. And I'm talking to somebody right now.